Welcome to the second podcast in our series of conversations with Professor Tim Jackson on revisiting consumption for a climate-friendly future. Today, we're going to focus on the changes needed to support a shift to more sustainable consumption. Tim, welcome back. It's great to have you here for a second podcast conversation as part of the Connect with Climate Change series, a partnership between Scottish Power and universities of Glasgow and Strathclyde. We discussed what consumption would look like or could look like in a sustainable society. So having envisaged this, and we see that from a well-being perspective, this is a future where for many of us we've arrived where the emphasis on growth has been replaced with a focus on prosperity for people and planet and on delivering good lives for citizens. I say for many of us, and I do want to turn to the issue of equality, um, which you highlighted in our later conversation. But for now, I'd like to consider how we get there, to think about the kind of key actors, the necessary actions. So Tim, to reflect on what and who needs to change to take us to the sustainable future? Yes, I think, again, I always, I like to proceed carefully along these routes. You know, it's it's common, and, and there was quite a lot of this during the pandemic of sort of people coming up with wish lists of policies. You know, so the universal basic income, for example, was quite a favourite amongst lots of people. Let's implement a universal basic income. It has cross-party support from lots of different political parties. Makes sense in a in the context of a pandemic, uh, particularly when you have to protect livelihoods. Maybe we transition the furlough scheme into a universal basic income, and that will sort of solve everybody's problems for us. Uh, now, you know, I think the universal basic income is an important tool in a toolbox. I'm not sure that it exhausts everything that we need to do. And and likewise, people used to say, well, if carbon's the problem, carbon has a shadow price. If we internalise that shadow price in the economics of the market through a carbon tax, then we can let the market optimise everything else. And I have the same reaction to that idea. A carbon tax is a crucial tool within a toolbox, but it's not ultimately where you kind of start, particularly when you're looking at institutional structures that are driving us into dysfunctional situations. So those tools actually tend to be very difficult to apply in a situation where you're driven by, you know, for example, the primacy of the market, the centrality of competition, as a, as a key element in human behaviour and the sense that nothing that you can't measure with money matters. So I do think that, you know, when we're thinking about how to, to move in the right direction, it's really important to understand what those, those driving principles, those visions of ourselves have been within capitalism and understand where they're limited. And I think, you know, the relationship to competition is one of those key features. I talk about it in post-growth quite a lot, uh, particularly when I'm, I talk, and it's one of the chapters which talks about the work of, of Lynn Margulis, who was a, an evolutionary biologist who, who really challenged the roots of that competition competitive metaphor and it is a metaphor for human behavior by showing just how important cooperation and collaboration had been within our evolutionary background and you know it was an extraordinary challenge she was a woman out of her time she was a woman 
talking against the mainstream view. She was a woman talking mostly to men and articulating, you know, a thoroughly different underlying principle from the one that we had accepted as the cornerstone of not just how economies work, but what human beings are. And what she was saying was not, you know, look, competition doesn't exist or it doesn't matter, but that it isn't everything that we can't organize everything around the assumption that we're just simply competitive, rational, self-maximizing utility calculators, as sits inside most of our views of economics. We have to think of ourselves actually as having evolved to prioritize collaboration and competition, to be collaborators as well as competitors, to be people whose care extends beyond the self towards others towards our community and towards our environment and then you know recognizing that this is a critical part of the human experience and one that was responsible for our success as a species then it's about building the institutions that protect that part of our human psyche that build the institutions which are collaborative which are cooperative, which see enterprise itself as the foundation for cooperation, which build the structures that financially support cooperative enterprises, which build the legal structures that talk about fiduciary duty, not as a competitive duty to a minority of shareholders, but actually something which is in the benefit of the best interests of society over the long term. So what I'm describing, rather than a simple silver bullet, a one-size-fits-all fix to our problems, and there are lots and lots of those kinds of policy measures, what I'm describing is a process for thinking through the fundamental things that have to change, thinking about how that means we must transform bits of our market, how it means we must transform our wage policies, how it means we must transform our environmental protections, how it means we must transform our financial regulation. And, and all of these things, just from that simple, simple example, it's a very fundamental example, but it's relatively simple of how we prioritised competition and neglected collaboration. That gives us the the roadmap, if you like, the way forward to build these different institutional structures. It, it tells us, if we follow that guide, where policies should change and how they should change. I really like this idea of collaboration and cooperation as a way to think about the different, you know, activities and the logics across the multiple. Um, stakeholders, if you like, that influence our consumption landscape. You know, it's a multi-actor space with various responsibilities, power balances, um, and thinking how these different groups intersect. I wondered if I could just turn your focus on to the consumer. And Tim, in a much earlier book, Material Concerns, you, you said we must place on the consumer at least some of the responsibility for making the economy sustainable. And there's been quite a bit of discussion around responsibilising consumers. And just to focus for a moment on our role as consumers, could you talk a bit about what these responsibilities are and perhaps how far they extend? 
I really love it when people remember that I wrote Material Concerns. <laughs> it was quite a long time ago. And I was feeling my way through these issues, I think, at that at that point in time, focusing most on enterprise and how entrepreneurs had to change. But remembering that ultimately it is, you know, consumption and consumers and citizens who provide the demand that production supplies. And so, you know, I think the concern around responsibilizing consumers, making them overly responsible is correct because, because consumers don't necessarily have the power to change production systems. They don't necessarily have the economic power to change financial markets. They don't even really have masses of political power to change political systems. And yet a part of the principles of democracy is that individuals in society can express desires which are political, which are economic, which are social in character. And therefore it is correct to think of consumers and indeed to think of citizens as being agents of change, not agents with unlimited power by any means, but agents with both responsibilities and rights to act in society towards the betterment of society. And so, you know, there are places where, for example, that can be quite influential. And I'm, you know, I'll just give you one example of a place which I hope is going to be influential, which is a recent campaign, actually, to make people more aware of where they're pension funds are invested and to give them access to the information that they would need to demand better pension funds and better pensions in the sense that those pensions are investing in the right way in society and not investing in the things that harm society. So this is a campaign actually led by Richard Curtis, who's, a, as many people will know, is a film writer of some success who's kind of turned his attention to a campaign called Make My Money Matter. And it's a campaign that takes that principle very seriously. It takes seriously the idea that, that people do have places in society where they can and should be able to make choices about the kind of society that we live in. And one of those places, it turns out to be a really important place, is where our money is invested. Like you probably, I for a long time had a pension, I still have the pension there, but I but I have slightly more access to what it's doing. But I had a pension locked inside a university pension scheme that gave me no transparency there whatsoever, gave me no way of changing where that pension was invested. So that, that ultimately it could, you know, was probably for many years being invested in exactly the things around fossil fuel energy systems that I had spent my professional life trying to fight. That idea that our pensions, our fundamental financial security can be invested in something that's undermining our own values. That's the place, I think, where we have to rethink uh, the ability of citizens and the ability of consumers to change that. And we have to give them not just responsibilities in relation to that, but rights in relation to that, access to the choices that will make their money matter in ways that matter to them.
And I couldn't agree more. You know, it's important that we both shift consumer desire, but also create an infrastructure for more sustainable choices. Because we know that as consumer citizens, we're not necessarily sovereign. We don't necessarily have those choices if we're operating within a structural environment that constrains um, more sustainable behaviours. We touched on previously on COVID and naturally in the book Post-Growth Life After Capitalism, you talk about the coronavirus pandemic and it's obviously still very central in our minds. And out of the tragedy of COVID were, were glimpses, perhaps not of actual dolphins in Venice, as you highlight in the book, but of a return to nature and a reconsideration of what's truly important to us. And in the book, you highlight key people and moments in history. And, you know, the example that I really liked that comes to mind is Robert Kennedy's campaign speech in, in 1968. And... You know, you invite us in the book to learn from the past. And I wonder, do you think COVID and the increased urgency around the climate crisis presents us rather with an opportunity for change that's different from those opportunities in the past? Yes, I do. I think if we dare to take it, this is a profound moment in time. And and I think what we saw in the pandemic was very clear illustration of how much could be done differently and and more and it happened more or less overnight you know more or less overnight uh, governments had to support people's livelihoods build hospitals protect um, their incomes overnight they had to reconsider reconfigure supply chains and get goods that we had not even thought about as being important uh, available in in very short spaces of time and overnight find the financial resources to do that. That was a huge lesson teaching us how much we could do differently, how much could be done differently in society, a really important lesson. The other aspect though of those stories that you mention in the book is that it can sometimes be too much of a pressure to think we have to change everything now it can be sometimes you know too much of a a pressure to say this is a once in a lifetime opportunity if we miss it we're completely stuffed um actually part of the book was rejecting that idea by pointing across time to these actually quite wonderful people and wonderful moments in time at which people had dared to think differently and almost saying there is a resource here there's a huge resource here that is not about our temporal moment in time our opportunity now it's absolutely relevant to that opportunity but neither is it going to go away that richness of thought those different ways of approaching what social progress means and and who we are as human beings is an enormous resource that extends backwards through time over centuries, sometimes millennia. And the stories of these people, which I, I hope are themselves a resource for people who read post-growth, those stories are a profound inspiration for us not just to seize this moment and this opportunity, but to build on it, whatever comes out of it in the next few months, build on it into um, the next decades. Thinking about time pressure, and, and that's very much something that we feel is, is on our minds right now. We're moving towards COP26 in Glasgow this year. 
are there kind of key questions that we need to ask ourselves in terms of, of moving forward? I mean, I think in relation to COP, there are there are huge questions. You know, to me, that the big question that COP, I hope, will will address, um, you know, sensibly, is is the whole issue around uh, financial structures and financial institutions and getting a finance structure that's consistent with a net zero emission pathway that will allow us to remain within 1.5. And you know, that as a as a kind of outcome from COP would, I think, be you know, a fantastic thing to have achieved because it is those financial structures and the fact that they've been pointing in such perverse directions that has made it so difficult to confront our climate obligations and shifting that, you know, even things like the Make My Money Matter campaign in ways that would, al would allow citizens to become involved and would allow companies to invest in the right way that would give financial institutions and banks the right tools and the right incentives to be shifting investments out of fossil fuels and into a net zero future. All of that, I think, is critical to the architecture of the success of COP26. And I would really like to see that taken forward at COP. Tim, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in our third and final podcast in this series.